Now we're going to turn our attention to the book of James. If you're a guest with us, we've been studying through James' letter. Today is our last sermon in the, uh, this study. If you don't have a copy of God's Word that you could open to look at it with us, there should be a Bible underneath the seat in front of you. You should be able to turn somewhere around page 1011 in that Bible and find the book of James. We're going to begin reading in chapter 4, verse 10 in just a moment, but we're going to focus our attention on chapter 5, verses 13 and following as James continues to transition to an exhortation that focuses on humility as we understand it in the life of the local community here. James writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he speaks to us with the same authority as if Jesus Christ himself were here speaking to us today. Humble yourselves, therefore, before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten Your gold and your silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidenced against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and their cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door, As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or by any oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. And the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins... He will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. 
The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, whom we know as Father through our Lord Jesus Christ, we give you thanks for your word. Your word is truth. It is a light unto our feet and a lamp unto our path, and we pray that you would help us to focus our attention on it now that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear beautiful things in your word. And we ask all of this in the name of our God who has revealed himself to us as Father, Son, and Spirit. Amen. In his book, The Righteous Mind, Jonathan Haidt says that religion uh, can be best seen in college sports. That college sports are a superb analogy for religion from a sociological perspective that focuses on what is most visible. For just a few hours, it binds all types of people and makes them feel simply part of a whole. It unites individuals who otherwise would have nothing in common into one singular community for a defined amount of time. And to a degree, height is right. Religion, specifically Christianity, is not the study of a bunch of lone individuals. Because the church will only be seen to be the true heir of Jesus' teaching by her distinct ethic as it works itself out in community. A distinct ethic she maintains while in exile, as James has been teaching us for the last several months, while suffering trials of various kinds that are testing her faith and producing steadfastness or perseverance and endurance in the faith. And James knows this. So over the last several weeks, we have seen how everything from chapter 4, verse 10, flows out of this exhortation to humble ourselves. James wants us to humble ourselves in relation to the law. And he wants us to humble ourselves in relation to the future. And he wants us to humble ourselves in relation to our riches, And he wants us to humble ourselves in relation to our personal suffering. And he wants us to humble ourselves in relation to our speech and oaths. And now he wants us to humble ourselves in prayer and care, all in the context of community. Everything from chapter 4, verse 11, all the way to the end of chapter 5, verse 20, is an implication of humility flowing out of verse 10 of chapter 4. And James has taught us that God gives grace to the humble the humble community that he calls to prayer and care in this section, a section that he introduces with a series of questions. Look at verse 13. Is anyone among you suffering? Is anyone cheerful? Is anyone among you sick? A good study this afternoon would go be able to go back and reread the book of James, and one of the things that you'll see is the Socratic nature of his teaching. He's been asking questions throughout the entirety of the letter. But careful readers also observed that the patience that James calls us to in verses 7 through 12 now gives way to the prayer that he wants us to practice in verses 13 through 20 as believers work this humble life out in the context of community and wait for the return of Christ. 
a theme that continues to dominate this section of the letter. We observed it a few weeks ago. Look with me again in chapter 5, verse 1. Coming upon you. The future's not distant for James, so he calls them to live differently now. It's not wisdom for a future day. It's wisdom for the present day. Chapter 5, verse 4. The last days. James wants us to see that the final days are now. Some of us are so concerned about the last days that we miss that James is telling us that you are living in the last days right now, so don't wait for them. Live differently now. Verse 7, the coming of the Lord. James is telling us to live as we expect the return of the Lord. One of the problems that many of us have with our Christianity, James knows, is as we're living as if the Lord's coming is far off. So he says again in verse 8, the coming of the Lord is at hand. It's not distant, it's soon. In verse 9, he's standing at the door. He's ready, so you should be ready. James's exhortation to patient humility in relation to prayer and care now in verses 13 through 20 is anchored in that same context, the return of Christ, as the Christian community displays her distinct ethic in the way that she prays and in the way that she cares. Only when we see that do we observe that the humble life for James isn't passive, it's active. It isn't individual, it's communal, communal prayer and communal care. Notice first prayer. Look with me again in verse 13 of chapter 5. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. James transitions to this section on prayer using a series of questions and imperatives. The first one asks, is anyone suffering? To which he responds, let him pray. Rather than chapter 4, verse 11, speak evil against one another when we're suffering, pray. Rather than chapter 4, verse 16, boast when we're suffering and try to arrest the circumstances, pray. Rather than chapter 5, verse 5, lift self-indulgently in this world, pray. Rather than chapter 5, verse 9, impatiently grumble about our circumstances, pray. Rather than chapter 5, verse 12, swear oaths, pray. Whether internal duress or external hardship, pray. Even when, verse 13, suffering, pray. James knows that believers then are just like believers now, tempted to react to their circumstances with grumbling and anger and discouragement. So he reminds us that there is one appropriate Christian response, prayer, a theme dominating this section of his writing. Seven times in our passage, verse 13, let him pray. Verse 14, let the elders pray over him. Verse 15, the prayer of faith. Verse 16, pray, pray for one another. Verse 16 again, the prayer of a righteous person. Verse 17, Elijah prayed fervently. Verse 18, Elijah prayed again. Instead of retaliating when facing the trials of life or impulsively breaking out into oaths, Christians, James says, are to pray. Not a new revelation, 
but a practice that many of us neglect, even though the members of this church have covenanted together to work and pray for the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace in our local church. Brothers and sisters, fellow members of this church in particular, are you taking it to the Lord in prayer when suffering? Or are you just grumbling about God's unfairness to others in your life? Prayerlessness, James has taught us, always goes hand in hand with the community-disrupting sins of judgmental speech and arrogant boasting and impatient grumbling and oath-breaking. But he has insisted that life's trials are not unnatural barriers to our walk with God. They are the appointed way forward to spiritual maturity for the believer, which is why at the end of this letter, he calls us to prayer just like he did at the beginning of this same letter. If you have your Bible, turn with me to chapter 1, verse 3. One of the things that you'll sometimes hear people say, especially if you come on Wednesday night, is to, to look at the top and the tail of an argument. Look at the, the end of the book and the beginning of the book, or the end of the passage and the beginning of a, of a passage. And what we'll see at the beginning, if we, if we look closely, are the themes that we see at the end. Look in chapter 1, verse 3. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials. He's just talked to us about suffering at the end of the book. Of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith... The trials, the sufferings, produce steadfastness. They produce endurance. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete. God's intention is that we would be whole, perfect, integrated people, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, what type of wisdom? The wisdom to navigate those trials. Let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. From the beginning of the letter to the end of the letter, there has been a sequence of patience and prayer. As James has called these believers to suffer social alienation and physical mistreatment and the disappointments of life in the dispersion as people who walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which they have been called, living whole, integrated lives. And that will be seen when in the midst of all of that, they are doers of the word and not simply hearers only. Brothers and sisters, just gathering this morning as we come to the end of this book, are you hearers only? You gather on Sunday, you take notes vigorously, you gobble up more information in academy, and you never consider how to apply it to your life Monday to Saturday and repeat the process the following week. James is preparing these people to live in the world together by being doers of the word, even in the midst of life's sorrows and tragedies. From beginning to the end, patience and prayer, patience and prayer. James called them to do that, and he has called us to do that because the positive way forward in situations demanding our endurance is patience and prayer. I wonder, do you believe that? Would an evaluation of your prayer life reveal patience and prayer? Or corporately, would your presence at the corporate gatherings of prayer in the life of this church reveal that you believe that communal prayer, patience and communal prayer, is something that believers should devote themselves to? 
I'm here on a lot of Sunday nights. And I would say that that is a rebuke to many of us, that the thing that we're quick to give up is corporate prayer. I don't need another prayer gathering. I went to church. James tells us patience and prayer go together in the life of the believer as they make their way through the trials of this world. In his excellent little chapter in the Institutes, John Calvin calls prayer the chief exercise of faith. That is, prayer is the primary way true faith expresses itself. And that means for Calvin that prayerlessness is a functional atheism demonstrating a lack of belief in God. Prayer should be something that we give ourselves to, which is one of the reasons we give ourselves to it even in our Sunday morning service. As Mark Dever, a friend of our church, has said, we should pray so much that unbelievers get tired of hearing us talk to the God they only pretend to know. Our prayer life, James knows, is disgustingly revealing, revealing of our lack of confidence in God and our disbelief that he, does, that he hears us. It reveals who we actually are when suffering. And for all of our talk and theory of faith, our prayer life, individually and together, reveals how much we really depend on the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. James' first question focuses our attention on one end of the human experience. Because when suffering, we grumble, and we think about what we grumble about. So James calls us to focus our minds, rather than on grumbling, on prayer. But his second question stretches to the other end of human experience. Verse 13, is anyone cheerful, James asks. Let him sing praise. The first question might have led many of us to expect James to ask something like, are things going well in your life? Rather than, is anyone cheerful? Because that would seem to be the actual balance of the passage. If things aren't going well, pray. And if they are going well, praise. But James doesn't do that, does he? He chooses a word that focuses on the internal disposition of cheerfulness rather than the external circumstances that often make us happy as he covers the broad range of human experience in this beautiful but broken world from suffering to cheerfulness. And in so doing, he teaches us that whether we find joy in life or pain, we should be going to the Lord in prayer and in praise. Believers. Does that characterize your life individually and together? Prayer and praise. And praises that are prayers. If you just think of many of the songs that we sing, like Take My Life, it is a prayer asking the Lord to continue to work his grace in and among us. James calls us to take it to the Lord in prayer and praise because he he assures us that our God is a loving heavenly father who cares for us even when we wrestle with things like illness. Look at verse 14. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. The fact that the elders, which James assumes there will be a plurality of in the local congregation, must be summoned to the house of a sick person indicates that the sick person is likely too sick to leave their home easily and is probably bedridden, which is why the elders are to come into verse 14, pray over him. And as they do, James instructs the elders to, verse 14, anoint the sick person with oil in the name of the Lord. James is not suggesting that you get on the phone with one of our elders and ask them to pray over you every time you struggle with your seasonal allergies. The fact that the sick person has to call for the elders to visit him suggests that the sick person is significantly ill. 
unable to do things that we often take for granted, like gather together with the people of God. So they need the elders to come and to pray for them because they don't encounter the elders in the normal rhythms in the life of the church, which means that practically speaking, calling for the elders to come and pray for you in this time of sickness not only puts your needs before them, but it also puts your needs before the local church. And as the shepherds of our church, friends, our elders are the best suited to know how to care for you and how to express your needs in the life of the congregation and how to minister the hope of the gospel to you. It really is our privilege to know what you're burdened with. It really is our desire to come alongside you and to pray with you and to pray for you. We are not simply asking because that's something we're supposed to do to fill out the prayer card as members of this church and let us know how we can intercede for you in the middle of the week. We long to do that. One of the chief things that we do as elders is pray together and pray for you. So if you were to come to one of our elders meetings, one of the things that you would see that we block a lot of time for are lots of little prayers and longer times of prayer because we know that one of the most important things that we can give ourselves to as elders in the church is prayer alongside ministry of the word, praying for you by name, which is exactly what we do. We take that directory that we give to you and we go down the directory and we pray for you by name and we pray for you by name as we pray for circumstances that are going on in your life. Friends, we want to know what is ailing you, what is burdening you, what is troubling you, so that we can not only pray for that, but we can figure out with you how to bring that to the congregation so that we might support you. James is telling us that this is one of the chief ministries of the elders of the church. But why the oil? James is not teaching the Roman Catholic doctrine of extreme unction. He indicates nowhere that we should see the anointing as a sacrament. And the person in this passage isn't at the end of their life. They are sick. James isn't saying that come and prepare them for death. And James is not telling us that the oil bears any magical or supernatural quality. The healing results from the elders praying, verse 14, in the name of the Lord. The Lord is the one who hears the prayer and the Lord is the one who answers the prayer. The oil is secondary in the passage to the central act of praying our humble expression of dependence on the Lord in all things, particularly with our health, which is why we take those burdens to the Lord. And the oil in the passage isn't medicinal, as some suggest. There is no evidence in this text or any text that oil should ever be read as a stand-in for medicine. It wasn't then, and it isn't now. So what is the point of the oil? The anointing with oil symbolizes a consecration to God as it does elsewhere in Scripture, Anointing with oil is a physical act expressing a spiritual truth. We belong to God, and we have committed our lives wholly to his care. Prayer expresses this point with words, and the anointing expresses this with action, which should not surprise us when we think of what James has called us to do throughout the letter, to be people of action, to be doers of the word. James is reminding us that prayer that pleases God springs from a humble life lived out, and on some occasions, God uses those faith-filled prayers as the means through which he heals the sick. Look in verse 15. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. Prayer is not some magical formula that twists God's arm to do what we want. James tells us the Lord will raise him up or he won't. It is up to the Lord. Rather, praying in faith, boldly ask God to heal the sick brother or sister, and humbly trust God's perfect plan, a plan that culminates with saving and raising up, not only in this moment, but on the last day when God will save and raise up all of his people in Christ. So should we anoint the sick with oil? 
It depends. On the one hand, God doesn't command Christians to seek out every brother or sister who's sick and anoint them. In fact, James tells us the sick person initiates contact with the elders for prayer. But on the other hand, if someone is seriously ill and desires healing, then one way that they can express their wholehearted reliance on God and their submission to him is by asking the elders of the church a very humble act to intercede for them and to symbolize their commitment to the Lord by being anointed with oil. Acts of faith and humility that express humble reliance on God and the community of faith, which is the very thing James has been pressing throughout the entirety of this section of the letter, that people would not see themselves primarily as individuals, but as a community making their way through the world and depending upon God who holds the power of life and death in his hand. The humble life for James is lived out in a prayerful way, in suffering, while joyful, even when we're sick. Prayer, notice second, care. Look in verse 15, the back end of the verse. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth, and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins." James concludes his discussion of praying for the sick by saying, and if he has committed sins, he'll be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. And he draws the conclusion that all believers should regularly confess their sins, but not just to the elders of the church. James has already taught us that the elders are to be called upon to pray. He knows that they're there. They're in the life of the church, but here they are to confess their sins to one another. They should, verse 16, confess their sins to one another when they have sinned against one another. The humble life lived out will be evident in genuine godly confession mirrored in relationship within the Christian community as believers not only ask their pastors for prayer, but also confess their sins to people whom they have wronged. John Stott summed up the idea this way. Confession must be made to the person against whom we have sinned and from whom we need and desire to receive forgiveness. There is secret confession to God because there are secret sins committed against God alone. Next, there is private confession because some of our sins are committed against a particular person as well as God, a private individual or two or three, and must be confessed to the offended person or party. Third, there is public confession because some sins are committed against a group, a community, or the local congregation and must therefore be confessed publicly. When we have offended a brother or sister, we must go to them and demonstrate care as we confess in what way we have sinned against them or done wrong and ask to be forgiven. And verse 16, join in prayer for healing. And such confession, James tells us, will result, verse 16, in spiritual healing that you may be healed. James is not suggesting the creation of accountability groups or small groups in the life of the church. He is telling those among us who have sinned against others to seek opportunity in private 
to put things right because as we have seen throughout the letter, James is deeply concerned about the unity of the congregation under duress and stress. Brothers and sisters, one of the things James has taught us is that breaches and fellowship are grievous as war and deadly as murder. Why then will you not be reconciled? Why will you not seek out forgiveness against people that you've sinned against? And why will you not, as we read earlier in the same service, forgive those who have come to you asking for forgiveness? Pride? It will require a posture of repentance and sorrow. Or fear. It will require a posture of forgiveness and reconciliation. Or perhaps it's anger. It will require a posture of prayer as we come close because one of the hardest things to do in that moment is to genuinely pray for somebody who has sinned against you. James is concerned that we really believe that prayer is the truest response to problems, verse 13, even the problems of serious illness, verses 14 and 15, and that it has the power to heal the sin-sick soul as well as the sin-torn relationship, verses 15 and 16. So he drives home the truth of prayer's power with an illustration, and we should not be surprised because James is teaching the congregation the illustration of Elijah, verse 16. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain, and for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. James transitions to the matter of effective prayer more broadly and generally here, and specifically, he points out that one can expect tremendous divine power to be unleashed through prayer, verse 16, of a righteous person. The word refers to a practical, invisible, godly behavior. In other words, those who walk closely with the Lord can expect to see a powerful response to their petitions, and James presents Elijah as an example of a righteous person who prayed effectively. Now we come to this text, and we're confused by Elijah because of the extraordinary nature of his life. It is incomparable with anything that we could ever do, and none of us will ever live like this. And he was a prophet. But James says Elijah was, verse 17, a man with a nature like ours. He was a sinner just like us. He had his own failings. Go read the biblical narrative and you'll see his doubt. He had his own weaknesses. He did not believe that God was going to work to save. And yet through ordinary prayer, the Lord did mighty things, something obscured in the way that this passage in particular is rendered. The text literally says, with prayer he prayed. The idea is not his fervency which is one of the reasons we come and we think, if I just pray really hard, it will happen. But I would say that probably many people in this congregation have been disappointed because you have prayed really hard and you've believed. You've believed more than you could have ever imagined that something would happen and nothing happened. And it wasn't the frequency of his prayer. Maybe it's not the fervency, but if we pray a lot, then it will happen. The point is not the fervency Close, up, close your eyes, scrunch up your face, and pray real hard. The prayer is not about frequency. Try a lot, and then that will make God do it. But the fact that he just prayed. He humbled himself, and praying he prayed. Or as Alec Mater said, the general truth James is trying to draw out with the illustration of Elijah in verse 17 is human prayer, divine results. To withhold rain is something only God can do. 
an idea that he teases out a little further in verse 18. Then he prayed again that God would do something, and heaven gave rain and the earth bore its fruit. God the creator ordered life's events in the world and the light of the prayers of Elijah. And one of the ways that God brings about providences in this life is that he ordains the prayers of his people to bring them about. Prayer is a thing of simplicity for James and power as we as a congregation exercise an affectionate care for one another in forgiving one another, verses 15 through 18, and as we'll see also restoring one another in verse 19. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. The phrase, my brothers, has appeared over and over and over again throughout James' letter, and especially since we've begun to flesh out his exhortation on humility. Just look with me quickly. Verse 11 of chapter 4. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. Chapter 5, verse 7. Be patient, therefore, brothers. Verse 9 of chapter 5. Do not grumble against one another, brothers. Chapter 10 of verse 5. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers. Chapter 5, verse 12, but above all, my brothers. Chapter 5, verse 19, my brothers. Which means no matter how abruptly we may see verses 19 to 20, and no matter how abrupt they appear at first sight, they have a real place in understanding the argument that James is developing here in the letter. James is not speaking to people outside of the Christian congregation. He is speaking to the brothers inside the congregation, and he is developing it all together for them here. They have a real understanding in helping us piece together what James is trying to teach to us, an argument that says that truth and life go together for James. Look at verse 19 again. If anyone among you wanders from the truth, James exposes one of the crowning errors of that time and this time, that people think that they can call themselves Christian without living a Christian life, or they can affirm Christian standards without living out Christian morals. James says that it's possible that some of those people who claim Christianity have wandered from truth. They are not living a Christian life, or they do not seem to display a Christian life. James says that there is a way of life that matches and grows together with truth, truth as it has been revealed in the person of Christ, truth as it has been articulated in this letter, truth as it is revealed across the Bible, and which cannot be had any other way. So he brings us now within the context of the local church, and he urges us to watch for people, to watch for people who are actually losing grip on truth, verse 19, to watch for people whose way of life wanders to such a degree that the error of verse 20, sin, is evident. It's not simply that they're not living well, it's that they're living sinfully. They're living contrary to what God has revealed in his word. And it's not simply that it's happening privately, it's public now. People see them wandering from the truth. So he urges us to watch for sinning wanderers in the church, verse 19, my brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth. He's not saying just look for people outside of the church who are sinning. James assumes that there will be people inside the church who are wandering from the truth. They will listen to false teachers. They will turn away from God's word because it's hard. They will not want to obey because it requires them to do something that they do not want to do. Perhaps confess and reconcile. Perhaps pray when suffering. 
perhaps give praise even when life hasn't worked out the way that they've wanted it to. And all of this, he tells us that we cannot simply sit back and have nothing to do with it, which is often the very thing that we want to do because it's hard and it's messy. James tells us exactly what we've already covenanted together to do, that we are to exercise watchfulness for each other and faithfully admonish one another and entreat one another as occasion may require. It is our responsibility, Christchurch Westchester. It's our responsibility, not just the responsibility of the elders. You never have to ask a pastor for permission to go and correct and admonish other believers in the church who are in sin. You never have to wonder if you have license to come alongside them and encourage them in the faith once for all delivered to the saints. You never need to wonder, does God want you to do spiritual good to other people and build them up or call them back to the Christian faith? James assumes that this is the work of all believers. The elders in particular were called upon to pray, but believers are participating in confession and restoration, and believers are participating in gathering this wanderer and bringing them back on the narrow way. It is your job, part of the job description that you agreed to as members of this church to help us fulfill the work of the ministry in this way. So James says, my brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and anyone brings him back, same word. One of the ways that we have agreed to do that for each other as fellow members of this church is to work together for the continuance of a faithful evangelical ministry by sustaining its worship, we're doing that, and its ordinances, we will do that, and its discipline and doctrines. One of the ways that we will sustain one another in this life is through the discipline that is both formative and corrective in the Christian life. Corrective, when we have to set somebody outside of the church, we remove them from the membership, and formative in all of the other areas of life when we're coming alongside them and saying, as one of the members who is here in this room today, several years ago came to me after sitting at my dinner table and said, you know, you really weren't gentle with your wife and kids tonight. I think that you need to go back and apologize to them. Formatively coming alongside the pastor and saying, you sinned and you need to repent. And he was right because my life is his business and your life is our business. Brothers and sisters, it's not simply that we would entreat one another on good days, but that we would admonish one another on those days when we're tempted to wander from the truth, James says. Brothers and sisters, we must be watchful all of the time for one another's welfare and the continuance in the truth because James knows that it's easy to want to give up. He's writing to a beleaguered group of Christians who want to give up. They're in exile. They're not having everything work out the way that they thought it would. Christianity is harder than they anticipated. They would have assumed that belief in Christ meant happiness in life, and what they have found is that belief in Christ has been met with social alienation and ostracization and physical torment and pain and difficulty in this life. So now here they are, wandering from truth, and James says, we need to go, we need to call these people back, because verse 19, anyone can wander. It's not just who we might perceive to be the weakest among us or the worst among us or the youngest Christian among us. Anyone can wander from the truth. But thankfully, anyone who is in Christ can be used to bring that wanderer back. And someone, 
anyone who brings him back. Let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Frankly, brothers and sisters, you cannot help bring back wanderers to the truth and put them on the path if you are uninvolved in their life. If that's the primary way that you view your membership here at Christ Church Westchester, then I think that you should speak with one of the elders about your membership. If the only way that you view your membership is what you do on Sunday morning and doing whatever you want to do the rest of the week, then you are completely missing the point of what it means to live life together in the context of community. And the only way that you can actually help one another is if you are invested in the lives of each other. And that requires vulnerability on your part and on the part of the people that you minister to. It requires trust from you and trust from them, which is why we cannot weaponize the truth against one another. If we're gonna help wanderers, we have to be trustworthy people. And I would say, brothers and sisters, as we've seen even in the past, sometimes we're not always trustworthy with what people have entrusted to us. The church has its elders, but anyone who becomes aware of the situation, James says, can be used to restore the wanderer. Fellow members of Christ Church Westchester, The church is a family of mutual care in which we watch over one another's welfare in the things of God. Your life is our business and our lives are your business as we participate together for restoration. When we do membership interviews here, one of the phrases that I often say to people as they're coming into the membership process, if you're a guest, we have membership interviews because we want to make sure that people agree with us and what we profess to believe and that they agree with us on how we say that we're going to live together. If you want to know what we believe and how we say we're going to live together, you can walk through that tunnel, turn to the right. There's two pictures over on the wall. One of those is the covenant. One of those is the uh, confession of faith. Confession of faith is what we believe. The covenant is how we agree to live together. That's the summary. So you'll come to the membership interview and we're going to ask you about those things. One of the things that I will often say say to people is a phrase like this. We love you enough to teach you the truth and we will love you enough to excommunicate you if you walk away from it. Because we want them to know that one of the most loving things that we can do is be clear about what we believe and have expectations for them to live in accordance with it. But notice that James understands that there's a delicacy and a discretion that needs to be used. Verse 20. Let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. On the one hand, the phrase about covering a multitude of sins is about a wanderer being brought within the embrace of the finished work of Christ. That's how sins are covered in the Christian life. A person comes to know Jesus Christ as Savior. It's not just for one sin that he forgives, not just a set of sins that they're aware of, but all of the sins in their life, past, present, and future, they come to faith in Christ. God knows every single one of them, and they are covered by the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ has offered his life as a once-for-all sacrifice for all of those sins forever. But the idea of covering is also found in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 8. If you have your Bible, just flip over there. It's a little bit to the right. First Peter chapter four, verse eight. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly. It's a good thing. We would expect to love one another earnestly. Since love covers a multitude of sins. In first Peter chapter four, verse eight, in relation to the love we bear for one another, we know about one another's sinfulness. And I think in many ways, one of the ways that we love one another earnestly is that we keep it quietly under wraps while we're trying to deal with it until it becomes public, not having to weaponize it against one another. 
So when the loving duty falls on anybody in this church to pursue somebody and care for somebody and try to rescue a wanderer, we do so in a way where we are aware of the lapse and they're wandering from the truth and the sin in their life, and we do it in a way that involves discretion and love. But that knowledge is not simply for ourselves during and after the process. It actually covers a multitude of sins. We don't make the situation bigger than it needs to be so that the situation can be dealt with and repented of. Friends who gossip in the room, one of the things that you make difficult is the repentance of other people. It's hard for them to turn back from sin when we blow up a situation and everyone knows about it because now we have to go and correct it in every single individual narrative. One of the most loving things that you can do is be quiet. Be quiet and walk alongside people and encourage them towards repentance. We must strive for the spiritual well-being of other people as if their eternal destiny rested with us even though only God, verse 20, can save his soul from death through the shed blood of Christ. And that is dealt, uh, something that is being dealt with because of our sin. Perhaps you're here, friend, and you are confused about what we're talking about with our life together today. And part of the reason that you're confused about that is you're not aware of what the Bible teaches about the sinfulness of your sin. Even as James speaks of it here, he doesn't coddle it and say that these are deficiencies in the life of the Christian. He calls the person a sinner. They've committed sins, verse 15. Their sin has separated them from God. Their sin as a result of separating them from God has placed them on a path where they will be damned for all of eternity. And the Bible says that the only way for that sin to be dealt with and that damnation to be taken away is through the finished work of Christ, where Jesus not only lived the perfect life, but he actually died the death that we deserve, bearing the wrath that we deserve in our place so that if we trust in him by faith, we might have hope of everlasting life. We need Jesus to be perfect and we need Jesus to die for us. And we need Jesus to have died in our place and believe that his death in our place was the death that satisfied the wrath of God against us. Friend, if you're here today and you have never trusted in the finished work of Christ, we invite you and implore you to trust in the finished work of Christ today. And the Bible is very clear and simple on what you need to do. You need to repent of your sins and you need to ask God to forgive you of your sins and you need to believe that Jesus Christ is Lord And if you have questions about what it means to repent and turn away from sin or to believe in Jesus Christ as Lord, one of the pastors would love to speak with you. I will be at that tunnel following the service. There will be another pastor at this door over here, but there will be members throughout the rest of the church here. They would love to open the Bible with you and talk to you about the forgiveness of sins. Friend, please come and speak with one of us. But believer, James isn't writing primarily to unbelievers again, is he? He's writing to believers in the church. Their sins aren't blemishes. They're sins that are causing them to wander from the truth. And they need people to come and to lead them back so that they are not led to death. Friends, the sins in our life must be taken very seriously, even as believers. We are not to neglect the sinfulness of our sin, just like we are not to neglect a straying sinner, but we are to seek them out in love and we are to turn away from them all of the time. Underlying James's exhortation is a biblical understanding of perseverance. And again, one of the confessions of faith that we read regularly helps us when it says this. The perfectly wise, righteous, and gracious God often allows his own children for a time to experience a variety of temptations and the sinfulness of their own hearts. 
He does this to chastise them for their former sins or to make them aware of the hidden strength of the corruption and deceitfulness of their hearts so that they may be humbled. Not done with the statement, but just think. There have been many times, probably believer, you thought, that's behind me. I'll never do that again. And what you have found is it's it's not as far behind you as you have thought. And you have done it again and again and again. And in all of those moments, you become more aware, if you are truly walking with Christ, of the deceitfulness of your sin. I'm okay. I've dealt with it. I've outgrown that. That pattern no longer is going to bother me. I'll never yell at her again. I'll never slam my hand down on the table. I'll never respond like that when my boss is an idiot. We'll never respond in those ways, only to find that we're doing it again and again. He also does this to lead them to a closer and more constant dependence on him to sustain them. When we see the sinfulness of our sin and how it's deceived us, we respond rightly in prayer and care by depending upon him to make them more cautious about all future circumstances that might lead them to sin. So we're now looking out into the future because of that and saying, I shouldn't do this. I shouldn't go to these places. I shouldn't watch these types of things. I shouldn't put myself in this type of situation. I shouldn't allow it to happen because I know the deceitfulness of my own heart and the deceitfulness of my sin. It wants me to think that I'm fine when I'm not and for other just and holy purposes. So whatever happens to any of his elect happens by God's appointment and for his glory and for their good. Friends, to wander from the truth, never to return, proves that we never really belonged to God. But to wander from the truth and be brought back to that path shows that we are actually God's people. One of the means that God has instituted to preserve you on that path are other brothers and sisters in this church. So for those of you who are struggling and you're offended when other members reach out to you, you need to see right now in the book of James that one, not only you're in a very dangerous situation, but that you need to see that they are a manifestation of God's grace and kindness to you. God is using them to help you because you are unable to help yourself and to live the Christian life alone. And as the wandering person is brought back, James says, from, uh, to repentance, from sins that lead to death, James says that they are now naturally on a path where their sins are covered. Brothers and sisters, James is teaching us how to live together. And he tells us that the humble life is lived out with prayer and care. Care and confession of sin committed against another. Care of restoration of a sinner into the fellowship as we display the word because it is so hard to finish well. When I was a young Christian, I've shared several times with many of you, I thought it would be very hard to start well and very easy to finish well. I was wrong. It is really easy to start the Christian life well. It is very hard to finish the Christian life well, and James knows this. So a large portion of his letter directs us to the return of Christ as he exhorts us to finish well and to live this humble life, to live it out in prayer and care, confessing our sins and restoring, wandering people. Why? Because the church will only be seen to be the true heir of Jesus' teaching 
by her distinct ethic as it works itself out in the context of community. A distinct ethic that she has to maintain while in exile, suffering trials of various kinds that are testing her and producing steadfastness and endurance. Something that my friend Pam Kilpatrick modeled very well, who last Monday met her beloved Savior as she left the land of the dying for the land of the living in the comfort of her home in Monroeville, Alabama. Over 47 years of marriage, Pam never held a high position, focused almost all of her attention on her family in the home, never accomplished any great particular feat, and yet her life impacted people far and wide, rich and poor, young and old. Her life was lived out in the context of community. She was a member of the same church for 42 years of her life. Pam loved her Savior, and she loved her church. And at her funeral Friday, they were able to say, Pam is now where she wanted to be even last week when on Sunday evening she was sitting right there at the back of the church as we conducted our service and carried out our business. Pam loved her Savior, and she loved her church community because she had learned that loving her Savior and working out her faith in the context of community went hand in hand the very thing that this table actually empowers us to do, bring our faith individually and our experience of it together, together in the context of corporate worship. As God's renewed people, not a group of renewed persons. Brothers and sisters, on the night that our Savior Jesus Christ suffered and died, he instituted this sacrament of the Lord's Supper, of his broken body and his shed blood as a sign and a pledge of his love for the continual remembrance of what he has done for us and for our salvation through his life, death, resurrection, ascension, and burial, and the sharing in that risen life together as the church. When we gather around this table, we do not gather as a group of individuals. We gather as one body made one in Christ, sharing of that same life together. And when we have that in mind, we're reminded of a few things. God's great love for us individually and God's great love for us to give us his friends as our own. For God's mercy towards us, for his continual providence in all of the areas of our lives and in the redemption of our bodies at the end of all things, who himself took on our own flesh and humbled himself even to death on the cross that we might be made the children of God. Friends, if we are to share rightly in this meal today and in the celebration of this mystery And to be nourished by this food, we have to remember the dignity of what we're doing. So I call upon us this morning to remember what the Apostle Paul exhorted all persons who are preparing themselves uh, for the Lord's table to observe. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 27 says this. Whoever therefore eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. The benefit is great if we come and approach the table with penitent hearts. But the warning is also great. If we approach this table flippantly, not taking our sin seriously, there will be a judgment upon us. Before we continue, 
Just take a moment and confess your sins to the Lord. Friends, as we examine our lives and our conduct by the rule of God's commandments this morning, if you've perceived that you've offended anyone in any way, whether in thought, word, or deed, right now at this time, not only confess it to the Lord, but friends, even as we're getting ready to observe this meal, go and reconcile with them. Go to that person and ask for forgiveness of anything that you've done or anything that you've said and be reconciled with one another so that you might live this life together. One of the beautiful things is sometimes to see people get up and to move in the midst of this time to ask another brother or sister for forgiveness because Jesus has taught us in Matthew chapter 6, verse 14, if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your heavenly Father forgive you. And once you are reconciled with one another, come to this table, this food, and be reminded of these words that we read earlier in this service. If, you, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. My little children, I am writing these things to you that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. Repentance removes doubt It gives us assurance, it strengthens our faith, and it reminds us that the love of Christ covers all of the sins in our lives. Friends, if you are here today, if you have repented of your sins and believed in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, if you have been baptized, if you are a member in good standing of an evangelical church that preaches the same gospel as this church, and you can't be a member in good standing of another evangelical church if you never go to it, But if you're a member in good standing of an evangelical church that preaches the same gospel that this church preaches, then we invite you to come to this table. But if not, friend, if you're not trusted in the Lord Christ, if you haven't been baptized, if you're not a member in good standing in the context of another church, then we would invite you to just stay in your seat and observe as believers come forward to this table in just a few moments. And during that time, one of the things that you can do is not only sing the songs that'll be on the screen above our heads, but to pray and to ask God to forgive you or prepare to even take action today by going to join a church. You can speak with one of the pastoral assistants. We'd love to have you join us in membership here. I'm gonna pray, and as I'm praying, I'm gonna ask those who are serving the table to come and to prepare to serve. There'll be two lines. We're gonna ask you to come, take a piece of the bread and a cup, and then go to the outside and go back to your seat. Uh, And I will have some additional, uh, uh, additional offerings down here as well for people who don't feel comfortable breaking off from a common loaf as well. Would you join me in prayer? Father, we thank you for the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, and we ask in Jesus' name that you would help us as we observe this table to take seriously our sin. Father, that even now that you would be making us aware of sin, that we need to ask for forgiveness of if we have sinned against others in the life of this church. Father, we ask that you would make us a congregation that prays together and demonstrates care in the confession of sin and the restoration of those who are wandering among us, that we would be a people who take seriously what you have called us to in the scripture, wherever it might lead. Father, I thank you for these men and women and their commitment to the gospel of Jesus Christ, and I pray that you would help them to endure. Even as we have learned from James over the last several months, 
We know that it is often difficult to endure, to continue in the faith. Father, we pray that you would help our unbelief. And Father, that you would strengthen our church as we walk together, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.